welcome to Everyday Design, the podcast about everyday design. Everyday design. Everyday design. 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 So I'm Rachel Fisher and... I'm Abigail Hall. And today we are going to be talking about Ikea, but before we get into that, we are going to do what we do every month, which is a little bit of This Month I. So Abby, what have you been doing this month? Well, this month, among the many things I have done... I read an article in Architectural Digest, a little favourite journal of mine, and I'll admit, I first read this and I thought it was a complete puff piece, editorial, for a a movie that's coming out with Dwayne Johnson, whom I love. Is that okay? The Rock. The Rock. He's gorgeous. I said it. There it is. (laughs) Um, And I was like, Architectural Digest, really? I mean, A, love you for talking about him, but B, really? (laughs) He's got this new movie, Skyscraper. And I thought, yeah, it's tenuous. Okay, there's a building in it. However, I must admit, I read this article and it was about the research that went into this three and a half thousand foot imagined uh, skyscraper in Hong Kong called The Pearl. Now, um, Jim Bessel is their production designer and he he didn't just decide, I'm going to make a skyscraper, it's going to be tall, I'm going to base it on, I don't know, the... Burj Khalifa, he got in Adrian Smith, who was the architect of the Burj Khalifa, right. to properly design something that structurally is realistic, but has also got some integrity to the design. And a little bit of history, there's a couple of his uh, his researcher and his concept designer went out to Hong Kong to look at, you know, can this building that's got a pearl, it's called the pearl, can you create a building that's got a pearl sitting on top of it, this big round sphere, without it looking phallic? And actually, I'm just going to say no. I'm well, going to stop you there and I'm going to say you exactly can't have that. a giant kind of shaft right with a round with a, thing yes, on the top. I thought the same. Yeah, actually, they, they talked about it in Chinese culture, the, well, the importance of the sphere and there's different elements of that. But mostly these, these two different chaps who went out, the researcher and the concept designer both independently found this this story of um, a dragon, a dragon in uh, Chinese philosophy, in history, represents strength and courage. Right. And so the basis behind this building actually is that it's this dragon is rising up out of the metropolis um, and it's gently holding this pearl in its mouth. Mm. And so suddenly I'm thinking, okay, this actually isn't just a... The next Towering Inferno, because it is a movie. Uh, um, it's it's an opportunity for architects to to use their imagination, but instead of it being a, a master plan or maybe something that is shown in Architectural Digest in a beautifully rendered picture, mm. it allows them to explore these solutions to human demands, which is that people want to live in Hong Kong, they need space. Is it not possible that there could be a three and a half thousand foot tower. And I have absolutely no idea how tall that is. It's phenomenally high. Burj Khalifa is about two and a half thousand. Right. Okay. Two seven, I right, think. Right. So okay. this is this is in building terms, head and shoulders <laughs> above the rest yeah, that's okay, out there. Okay. Um and what I liked about it was that you've got a global audience. And actually, you're you're bringing architecture into the mainstream. And is this not an opportunity for architects to align themselves to 
movie makers, maybe even TV producers in the future, and do something that's exciting without actually needing to have huge funding and it be a possible project. So I feel like that is the topic for like an entirely separate podcast about kind of film architecture. I literally am looking at a book on my bookshelf called Film Architecture. So So much. one of the things that's interesting about kind of sci-fi and other sort of futurescaping um, sort of movies is that they often kind of have architects kind of come in. Certainly nobody Mm. in that often not of that standard Caliber, yeah. but but they have architects come in and sort of like well if you were imagining a vision of the future so like Black Panther is a really really interesting film about kind of like what does a what what does that society look like and I think Black Panther for me was a, was a film that really kind of captured um, in the kind of uh, creation of the city of Wakanda really really captured a very different view of how you would live in a kind of post-scarcity society so I def- yeah no I mean I think that's a, I want to see a picture of the pearl, and B, we should definitely um, kind of think about doing a whole podcast on on that. But I just I liked it because I started off thinking puff piece, yeah, editorial, yeah, and actually it goes to show that the dialogue about architecture, the intrinsic investment in consideration of it, is in our everyday world. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, and, I'm, I'm, and sure that, that, I'm sure that most of the people who go and watch that movie, they just go, yeah, big building. <laughs> yeah. Dwayne Johnson, like amazing. But that level of detail, that level of consideration is exciting for me for young architects coming through. Mm. You've got these visions who actually, it, it doesn't play out in reality. No. They do it as a concept as part of their degree and then they end up, you know, setting out toilets and designing car parks. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, no, 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 fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, so this month I've been, I've been thinking it's sort of actually not completely the other end of the spectrum. I've been having a lot of conversations this month about the future of work. So what will people do in the future? The rise of the robots, um, automated cars, that kind of thing. What, you know, what will, what, what will we be kind of doing in the future? And for me, that kind of immediately comes to a whole conversation about how will we be living? What will the, what will the built environment response to, um, say something like universal basic income coming in? So the idea that people aren't going out every day to work. What does that do? What does that do to our kind of concept of public transport? What does that do to our concept of the office place and the kind of increasingly sort of narrow gap between home and work? So everything is live work. And this necessity for immediate community where you are, because everything suddenly is in your proximity. Exactly. You so, have no separation. No, and I, and I think there's a really interesting sort of um, experiment that was done by a guy uh, who basically designed the most perfectly functional sim city. And basically everything in this sim city existed within kind of a square kilometer. So you could live, work, play, do whatever you wanted in that kind of, in, in this tiny, tiny sector. And for me, that sounds like a dystopia, right? Oh my God, it's petrifying. But on the other hand, as we are increasingly, so, you know, if I, you know, I work from home a day a week and actually that means that I'm using my domestic sphere. That means that I'm using my high street really differently than I did previously when I was kind of passing through. Exactly. So it was a place where I, you know, maybe went out in the evenings, maybe had brunch on a Sunday. Grabbed an avocado on the way home. Right. But actually, if you're spending more of your time at home and then also spending time differently where you're working, because actually your work is maybe just a touchdown point, maybe you're working from a coffee shop. Like, so, so there's some really interesting considerations for designers um, and for urban designers in particular about like how do we actually design cities where kind of human capital is, is the dominant thing that we're trying to kind of um, sort of maximize. But also the home takes on such a greater function because you are there 18 hours a day 
20 mm. hours a day. And then you get into some really interesting questions about are we actually designing homes that have enough space for people to spend 18 hours there and for it to perform that kind of multifunctional sort of... Which is going to lead in very nicely to our main topic about IKEA and in the impact of environment. In a yeah. bit. So before we get into our main topic, let's have a little bit of fun with what I like to call good design, bad design. Abby, what have you seen that is good? Well, I have been at Hammersmith Apollo and it is good in so many ways. Um, it's a local gig venue, if you weren't aware of it, globally aware. Um, and it was built and fitted out in the 1930s. It has got the most phenomenal um, interior architectural detailing. Freezes that were done in an Art Deco style that are in the lobby. And I was just, I was there, it was a Run DMC gig. Obviously, if you uh, met me, you'd know how in Congress that was. And I was there at the bar, you know, having a little beer, sparkling water. And I'm looking at these freezers just thinking, this is exceptional. It's almost impossible to justify that level of investment in interior finishes Mm. now. Because there simply isn't the capability, there isn't the level of artisans and ability to do what would be done now probably in maybe wouldn't even be done in plaster anymore. And it... But it's very much not part of the architectural aesthetic that we're currently going for. So I feel like this kind of, like, really clean line aesthetic, the very modernist aesthetic, that's not something that kind of lends itself to but that is, little that, finials but and But that clean freezes. line aesthetic is driven by cost, because actually these finishes are in the nice-to-need-to category. Yeah. They're listed as nice-to. They're the first thing that would be value-engineered out if we were doing a, a build project and rebuilding the Hammersmith Apollo now. But I, I know very few architects, certainly very few architects in the UK context. There are more, I think, in the American context. But there, there are very few Amer- uh, UK architects who would even start to go down that road, who would, who would sort of say, well, actually, what I want to do is decorative. Decorative is something that isn't really taught in architectural schools. I agree completely. And I don't think that's necessarily just just a factor of value engineering. It's, 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 it is genuinely a kind of architectural trope. But it's also, it's to do with materials. The material value of having, in this instance, beautiful plaster work, right. it, it doesn't have a, a, a structural integrity. It's a, it's, it's, it's a past material it's not innovative, it's not challenging, it's not moving us forward, as opposed to beautiful glass curtain walling or huge expanses or the... Which is really expensive. Which is really expensive. But also, architectural plaster work is now really expensive because there's not the capability to make it anymore. So there I am, standing in this space, observing something that... And it isn't just the plaster work, it is also the lighting that goes with it, which is mm. all you know authentic to the time. And it just... Do you know, it blew me away. It blew me away that there we are watching a Run DMC gig in a space that it wasn't designed for that, yet it was stunning. It was really good design. The space worked. It worked acoustically. It worked for its original function, but it had this decorative element that stepped it up. And it was beautiful to be in. It was beautiful. It was good design. Do you know what's funny is that completely unprompted and completely unplanned, my good design of this month is also a gig that I want to go see. Because, you know, we're cool. We're cool, we're cool, we go out, we we leave the house. Um, So I went to go see Donna Emanuel and the Stolen Band, Mm. um, which is just incredible, and we will link to them in in the show notes. But um, it's a five-piece all-female band with banjos and violins 
Love it. What's not to love. And the gig was really interesting. So it was um, advertised via Airbnb. So you basically buy your tickets on Airbnb and then you turn up at this venue, which is what I know to be, because I've lived in London for most of my life now. Um, so it's it's in what used to be a Korean hairdresser's on Denmark Street. No. Yeah. And what was really interesting is it's this... Um, it's this, it's this quite small venue, very intimate venue. It's a guitar shop. And the guitar shop is trying to kind of bring live music back onto Denmark Street and kind of revivify Denmark Street because quite a lot of it's been wiped out during the kind of process of building yeah. Crossrail. Anyway, but what really struck me, in addition to just the absolute staggeringly clever uh, lyrics and amazing band and just gorgeous women um, was that actually the um, plaster work funny you should say so I, w- I was sort of standing there with my you know G&T and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm listening to the band I start looking at the walls as you do because you're me and you notice these kind of little yes. everyday design features yes. and I'm kind of looking I'm like oh I, so I know that this used to be a Korean hairdressers and I know that this used to be very kind of clean lines and blah 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 um, And actually, I'm thinking, oh, the walls, they look like, the, it looks like the plaster's peeling. And then I look a little bit closer, and I'm like, no, actually, that's some kind of finish that they've done. And actually, what they've done is they've done a kind of plasterwork thing where it looks like there are these incredibly subtle, like if you'd had, um, if you'd had the freezes up, if you'd had the kind of, the, the, the frames for the freezes up, and then they'd fallen away. Yes. So it's like the ghosting of materials that were never there. How beautiful. And you think that was intentional. Oh, no. I they know that. So it was not. No. This was, is. No. Because I ended up, because I am me, I ended up speaking to the woman who was organizing the gig. And I was just like, I, I love what you've done with the plaster work. And she said, I know. That took so much time. And we had to find these contractors. And so, so, so yeah. So what they've done is they've put in a patina. They've put, they've aged it. It's kind of like this shabby chic kind of. To give it authenticity. But it, obviously it's not authenticity. Because it is inauthentic. This building will never have been the kind of building that will have to had have that, that, that kind of, of you know, architectural detailing. And yet they've kind of put in a past that didn't currently exist, that, that hadn't existed. But it was, but it was again, it was like this, it, it was an example of good design because I think actually it worked incredibly well, both as a guitar shop and actually as a very intimate music venue. And I think one of the things that in a city like London or any of the kind of bigger cities, you, you realize that actually you, you deeply need these kind of multifunctional spaces. You need With- these multi-use spaces where during the day we sell very expensive guitars to people that will probably never play them. But also probably not that many guitars, in truth. Exactly. So you're maximizing the value of your floor space by having somebody else come in in the evening and play a gig that they've sold via Airbnb. So you're keeping your costs low, but you're actually kind of maximizing profit. And I actually thought that's that's a really good example of design, both in the aesthetic, which I was really taken by, but also in the kind of use of the space and how that kind of space is playing a multifunctional use within the kind of wider context of the city and we need that in the city we need to have by day this by night that yeah absolutely because we don't all live our lives sort of within this kind of like and I would never go to a guitar shop by the way but I will now go to that one you will absolutely go to the guitar go to that shop one. just to see the plaster work and how phenomenal is that indeed third way so bad bad design, design. I, I have a genuinely traumatising experience of bad design talk to me this month so this month we needed to renew our parking permit joyous our activity. parking permit through our local borough and 
design, I think it's important to always remember that design is not just about what you see. Design is about what you experience. And, you know, it's very popular within kind of the uh, kind of tech world to talk about user experience design. And I have, and, and you have user experience architects and what they're designing is the architecture of your experience as you work through a website or a, or a process. Exactly right. And this was the worst piece of design that has, so the first kind of customer contact point within the journey is we receive a letter saying you need to renew your parking permit. Fine, fair enough. They're annual. Yes. These things happen. You don't need to do anything. You just need to go onto this website with these numbers and this and, and your credit card and pay for the thing and fine. And so we kind of, you know, we received it about a month in advance and obviously left it till the last week thinking we oh, we've got loads of time. And also because the way that the letter was designed, the letter led us to believe that it would be a very straightforward process. So you go onto the website, you enter in all of your details, you go through several pages of entering your details. Um, and then at the end it says, oh, I'm sorry. We've changed the way in which we're um, we've changed the way in which we're, we're charging we're in order to kind of ensure that you know people who are driving more polluting cars are paying less money, or uh, are paying more money rather, and so okay, so now you need to put in your V five and you need to like say what kind of car it is so that we know how much pollutants it's putting into the air. Da, 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 da. Now clearly we couldn't find the V five and obviously that was not their fault. But then we get the V five, enter it in, and. And the computer basically just said no. And there was no recourse. There was nothing you could do. The computer basically just said no because the computer didn't believe that the V5, that what the V5 had said was the particulates, was the particulates of the car that we had. But there was no person to talk to. So we called and called and called. Like five times we called the helpline to say, this is not working. Your system is Your failing. system is not working. Finally, I took to Twitter. And I tweeted at local authority your user experience design is horrific and I cannot renew my parking permit. This is unacceptable. Within two minutes, I had a response. I do not think that I should have to be au fait with social media in order to renew my parking permit. That's extremely exclusive. That's massively exclusionary. And what's sad about this is you're telling me a story that I've experienced myself in different manifestations. Yeah. Every single person who's listening, yeah. we've had this too. And it is simply poor design. And, it, and it's just not thinking through kind of what is the customer experience? What is, what is the purpose that you are trying to achieve? And how will people interact with that? Computer says no. The computer says, and it was just, yeah. it was just soul destroying and genuinely a stress that I do not need in my life. My God, no. And so tell me about your bad design. Well, my bad design is, is much more physical. Yep. Um, I, but again, related to a local authority, I was, um, I went swimming, which is a, an attempt to, be the healthy person that we all try and be and the uh, the leisure center that I went to has got um, female changing and I like to think that they thought that women would need to have showers and use the loo good of them but I'm, I'm making assumptions I believe they designated a large space kind of circa 12 metres by 12 metres to female changing. They certainly planned in plumbing for showers and uh, drainage and, you know, toilets and all those facilities. But they effectively put the cubicles for the loo against one wall of this large open plan space, which I'm not necessarily adverse to per se. It maximises the space. However, when you're on said loo in a tiled 
open plan space with no bulkheads, no acoustic, exactly, anything to dampen the sound. And the cubicles that they chose had large gaps. When I say large gaps, anything for me over 30 mil. Anything where I can make eye contact (laughs) with someone who's getting changed (laughs) while I'm on the loo doesn't lend itself to good design. So please, Wembley, I'm naming you, I'm naming you. Think about the user experience, exactly the same as you, th- yeah. you said. It's bad design. And there's no there's no recourse, there's no ability for me to say to them, I'm a prissy woman who actually wants to pee in peace. Because <laughs> then you get the pee fear. Oh my gosh. And let me tell you, before you go swimming, that's not a fear you want to have. No, no, that is... No. 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 I think that is right. I'm afraid that is bad design. That is, that is excellent. Oh. I just found a store called Ikea. Oh, Ikea. I literally sang that the first time I walked in. You did. It was like I had walked into the pages of the catalogue and I had only ever sort of seen the catalogue and then and then I walked into a store and there was a store that was the catalogue. It... I, it was amazing. It was like a cathedral. It feels like we had a, the similar experience, but with a different feeling. <laughs> so I also walked into the store. I went, oh, I see. This is why everyone's house looks the same. That is so unfair. That is so unfair. I, I, the truth hurts. Sometimes. Look, we, we're always going to butt heads against this, and this is why it's such a good topic for us to talk about. IKEA basically invented the idea of everyday design and that everybody deserves to have a piece of good design in their home. I don't deny that. And they, am... they made good design accessible to everyone, and they changed. So the thing for me about IKEA is that IKEA fundamentally changed the conversation about design and changed the conversation about the aesthetic. So I'm American. I grew up basically with Pottery Barn and Restoration Hardware and all of these very kind of like backward looking, could it be a, what, did, did you find it in a French chateau? Kind of, you know, and of course you Did you inherit it from Granny? Yeah, but, but, a, but as an American, that's completely unachievable. That is, you know, the, the William Sonoma, I, you know, I summer in Provence. Like that is not an achievable level of design. Whereas Ikea with its kind of very straightforward kind of Scandinavian design was a completely different thing. And because it was, you know, and because it just sort of did away with the kind of floral Laura Ashley crap that I'd kind of grown up with in the 80s, it was just, wow, what a breath of fresh air. Like, this is just clean. This is wipeable. As a parent, I now value that more than I ever thought I would. I don't, nothing that you've said is not true. I just feel like (laughs) it has... It has taken It's gone too over. far. It's, yes, it's gone too it's far. It's gone too far. It was a good idea that's simply gone too far. And if I look at it, if I break it down to its component parts, so what do I think of IKEA designers? They are, they're geniuses. They are phenomenal because not only are they creating design that, as you say, it is iconic, it is accessible, it is zeitgeist, there is quality there. They're also doing it at a price point that's accessible in a way that it can be flat-packed and mass manufactured, their sustainability is considerable. I mean, it's an engineering feat. It is an engineering feat. So for so when I look at it in the individual component parts, I can excel the virtues of IKEA. However, I feel sad that there is too much in the way that they present it of room sets. Yeah, it's okay. too done. And yeah, I no, because you can walk in now and it's like. Oh, I will buy this 30 meter house. 
it, exactly so and they yeah. lay it yeah, out yeah. with that exact intention yeah. and so actually you don't just buy the bedside tables you do buy the bedside tables and the set of drawers and the dresser and the bed and the linen and the matching frames for the art and oh by the way while you're there why not get the art at the same time oh and the rug and the chandelier and the and uh, the glasses and actually i'm living on page 12 of the catalogue and the problem with that is at what point did you stop oh. making your own design choices? But do you know what's interesting about that? It's accessible aspiration. So it's the idea that basically, so, so if I'm looking in some catalogs or in some sort of, you know, if, if I go to Heels mm. and I see a room sort of set out in Heels, I will not be able to buy the eight the component, the component parts on that table. Yes. I might be able to buy a tiny piece of heels and take it home with me. A, a, yes, a light candlestick. A light fitting. Yes. And in fact, I, I own a light fitting from heels. But like a light fitting. And it was a very reasonably priced light fitting that I got on sale. But like, I can't just walk into heels and say, yes, I'll have one of those and one of those and one of those. Whereas Ikea, I see a room I like. And actually for quite a lot of people that is an incredibly accessible sort of aspirational lifestyle that you can bring you can literally bring that home with you but i question when you have brought that home and you're sitting in that ikea showroom slash home yeah what part of that is resonating with you and making you happy are okay. those design choices something that you feel intrinsically that they represent you, that you're surrounded with things that are positive because you acquired them over time and with a lovely happy story or do you just rely on the fact that some of the frames have got pictures of your mates in and that's enough? Maybe that is enough. Maybe as a but designer, reminded, I demand more. So I'm reminded of the, I, I'm, so I think the analogy for me is about food. So there are people for whom food is just kind of fuel and they don't really mind what they eat. And for them, there is fuel, which is the kind of like meal supplement yes, kind of thing, it's right? It's literally nutrients. It is literally nutrients. Take a pill. Yes. Never have to eat again don't want to think about cooking, don't want to think about food. And then there are other people, and I would count myself as one of them, for whom food is kind of expression creativity, food is, a, is, is, is something of interest, food is something to talk about, food is something to savour, food is something to think about. And so for you, you are a gourmet of design, right? You are a gourmet of interior design, and you want all of the components of the design to speak to something in your life and in you. Whereas I think for some people, it is just like, oh, it's a T-shirt. To mix my metaphors terribly. I get it. The food t-shirt analogy does work. But answer me this. If all the people who are shopping in Ikea feel that way, that it is, it is merely, I need a chair, my, my, my desire is to sit down and I need something to sit on, and Ikea fits a price point of it's cheap enough, it has the function, oh, and it's available because they can deliver or I can go and collect it. Hmm. Why is our landfill full of Ikea furniture? So if that's it's a different filling question. such a function, why are people disposing of it? And I would argue yeah. the point of that it's actually, it's not fulfilling that part of you that wants to have something that is of value and that you actually love. Is it maybe too cheap? So it's almost every item is a buy-the-till purchase. Is it, well, is it... Fun fact, my first purchase at Ikea was a box of straws. The first time I went to Ikea, I spent 99 pence on a box of straws. Now, I would never do that again because no. obviously straws are evil. But 
my, you know, so, so I went into Ikea, I was overwhelmed by the stuff and I made a mental note of about a thousand things that, that you clearly I wanted and, need, and needed, needed, listen to the language, needed, yes. a lot of things that I needed and I was so overwhelmed by that. All you could do was buy the box. All I could do was buy a box of straws. It was like, well, actually, do you know what? We're having a dinner party and I probably need to have some straws for my gins and tonic. Yes, I know. Um, I mean, now obviously I I own half the store, but um, but but at the time I just I just thought no I'm I'm making it out of I'm making it out alive with no, and there was a time there was a time where my husband and I were going to IKEA when we were when we were um, we just moved into our house and we moved from a two bedroom flat to a four bedroom house and there was so much empty space in my house that we were going to IKEA I don't think I'm exaggerating to say like once every week. It becomes and, an activity. It's, well, it it's does. some people's hobby. It is. To go and, there. and actually that, you know, that isn't that isn't it's not healthy. That's not positive. That is that is proper consumerist culture. Exactly. Which, which I you know, which which I think is bad for the human soul. In bad. terms yes. you know, in terms of just sort of saying, Well, I need this, I need this, I need this. Well, no, actually I don't need any of these things. And so now now we mostly go to IKEA because it's like soft play for my children. Um, and there's a tasty lunch at the end of it. Um, and we might buy our thing that we need. So, you know, picture frames. Replacement light bulbs. Replacement light bulbs. More yeah. packs of Rusties that I can keep in the freezer. Exactly so. So, for me, I have I have a love-hate relationship. I own Ikea furniture. It's I'm, important to get that out there. I'm a human being. <laughs> I, I absolutely adore the items that are function first, aesthetic after. And in that respect, IKEA, are, again, I laud their designers for achieving things. The Billy Bookcase costs, I don't know, but we will have it in the show notes, the link to it. It's around 20 quid. Yeah. Approx. I have one a Billy Bookcase as my shoe rack at the moment. My shoes, I have my friends re-Instagram the pictures of my shoes because I have them in colour-coordinated order. Shoes are my problem. Oh, that will be in the show notes. Oh, that's going to be in the show notes. Um, and but the the Billy bookcase is so quiet from a design perspective. Yeah. It's so neutral. Yeah. No one is asking me what I've stored on. In fact, most people presume it's a piece of bespoke joinery that I've had commissioned. Not that is what I thought. A twenty quid bookcase from IKEA, and in that respect, it's incredibly successful. It has travelled with me, and it hasn't travelled well because their furniture mm. doesn't because it's not built to last. Um, and it is worth mentioning at this point in researching this element, I did look at quite a lot about sustainability around IKEA. And IKEA actually do offer uh, a collect and destroy service for ex-IKEA furniture. Interesting. Because there is a huge problem, especially, um, and sad to say it's in student areas, I don't want to say it's absolutely the responsibility of students, of at the end of term time, there being a pile of ex-IKEA furniture. Deconstructed, yeah. back that, to that's... its original flat pack state, sitting in a front yard of a, of a student house. And actually, that that is a problem. Um, so, I mean, but you do touch on this point about the kind of sustainability credentials of IKEA, and I think that they have done a huge amount yes. um, to be sustainable in the terms of the the sourcing of their materials and in the recyclability of their materials. Um, and and more, and and I do think that you know more companies should take a, a kind of more progressive approach to sustainability and kind and, of the and, kind and of the life cycle of that. Yeah, item and the cradle to cradle yes. life cycle of 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 what they're of what they're selling. Um, Irresponsible owners are irresponsible owners. That is true, and, and you can't blame just as you can't blame McDonald's for the fact that there are blo- McDonald's wrappers on the street if a consumer is choosing yeah. to dispose of something in a certain way. Um, so 
big, big fan for the really, really functional pieces. Not such a big fan of the items where it there is a strong design element to it, but it's everywhere. Because for me, that goes to show if someone has chosen something with a strong design element, it means that they're not just the using so the like a statement food, piece, the statement piece, the statement lamp, chair, whatever it may be. But what that person are they only looking at IKEA? Have they looked at every other avenue? And I'm not just talking about heels here. Mm. I am talking about Etsy. I am talking about eBay. I yeah, am yeah. talking about the small artisans. Because actually, when you look at the the, the things that are cheap in IKEA, are those it's the Billy bookcases. The other the things pieces, that just kind of work. The other pieces can be more expensive. The upholstery items aren't always the cheapest. But I think there is a this common misconception that I'm going to go to Ikea and I'm going to get everything. And, oh, I've just bought a 150 quid chair. Yeah. Oh, I'm a, okay, Ikea. It must be cheap. Well, actually, in that respect, that is not that cheap an item and you could get that somewhere else. And then when that item is disposed of, the amount of material that is being wasted... Oh, no, 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 I, I hear you. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting for me about IKEA is is how they kind of have branched out as well. So um, there were, they, they have a, they have the sort of like the, the flat pack house. Mm. So the idea that you could build an entire neighborhood of IKEA houses mm. that are kind of prefab houses that they put up and then, surprise, surprise, it is designed so that IKEA furniture can fit into it. And this kind of whole idea of sort of modular design and being able to kind of create an entire IKEA neighborhood and you can live you can genuinely live the ikea life um and I, I don't know if you saw the the documentary on ikea that was on the bbc um a few months ago yes um but the idea of like all of these guys going out to sweden and going to the mothership and and yes. really kind of getting indoctrinated in the cult of ikea and the entire town is ikea town which is amazing, actually, because a lot of the philosophy that they're, that they're sort of espousing is really, really positive, it is about sustainability, it is about community, it is about all of these things. Um, and they're doing it with a particular kind of aesthetic um, and, and with a genuine, I think, attention to good, deep design principles. And the fact that people have viewed them, you know, I think problematically in terms of being kind of disposable furniture, to, to a certain extent, isn't isn't really Ikea's fault. Uh, yeah, and I take that point, and I'm not going to keep banging on about it, and I realise I've used that example twice now, but what I would say is in your in your Ikea town, in your Ikea world, the reason it becomes an Ikea town mm. is because if you've bought your Ikea bed, it is not a standard size. That makes me crazy. But they've done it on purpose, because if you own an Ikea bed, that means you have to buy Ikea, Ikea sheets. Now, And if you me. own a non-Ikea bed... Woe betide you if you seek to purchase Ikea sheets for your non-Ikea bed. Exactly so. Now tell me that that isn't something where in a design department, someone said, hold on, we have an opportunity here. Yeah. We can get you in by getting the mattress so that it's a fantastic price. Of course they're a capitalist company. But again, it ties people in. It takes away Mm. that choice for them. Um, What I am excited about in respect of Ikea, and we see this an awful lot on um, social media, Facebook, I seem to get loads of stuff, Mm. Um, this upcycling. Yes. This expression of creativity. Using it as a palette. It's always the ones, the very very quiet functional pieces that have the greatest opportunity to exploit it and make it more beautiful. And that I love. That for me then... They're selling a canvas mm. on which to project people's experiences, their creativity. And 
I would like to see more of that. And I want to put my hands up and say, if IKEA have done this, then well done to you. But I would like to see more collaborations with local artists, people who have that capability to upcycle, add value, maybe even to workshop within the space. So in a certain extent, actually, what you'd want to see is that in the IKEA catalogue, that you actually have had a hack your IKEA. Yeah. So like so so what I what I see a lot on Pinterest and other bits of social media, particularly, is the lack table. So it's the very short, yes. very cheap. It's like eight quid side table, um, which you can decoupage in ever so many ways. And particularly, so I've I've got two small kids, and you see all of these parent IKEA hacks. So the 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 lack table seems to lend itself to becoming a a map of the world table on which you can play real life risk or whatever. Like it's, and it's brilliant. It's, it's, and it's a great size for kids. It's a great kind of, it's a great piece to have and it's light and they can move it around. So there there are a lot of good things about that. Um, And I think the thing that I like about it is that it shows that pieces don't need to be in the room for which they were designed. And so there's a lot of transferable pieces within Ikea. So yes. you may be buying something in the kind of kitchen section, but actually you can use it in the bathroom. You can use it in your bedroom. Like it's, it's, it's a transferable piece. And these things can, you know, serve different functions in your life through different periods in your life, which reminds me of the kind of collaboration that they did with Tom Dixon. Yes. Um, where they did about, that. Is it, is it a sofa? Is, is it, it a, a sofa? bed? Is it a bed? Is it a sofa? Is it a bed? It's that a bed tried, sofa. That tried to be too many things, I think. So, but it was modular. Yeah. And, and IKEA are not the first company no. to do modular furniture. They're the first company to have the marketing budget that they do, the production facilities that they do, and the outreach that they do. Um, listen, I'm always going to have to go to IKEA for something. I just, I would like it if the thing that I'm going for is always a frame or it, a small, replacement glass. Yeah. Huh. They've So, Ikea, if you are listening, you've stopped doing my everyday champagne flute. You see? I have you 11. You have to now buy I have 11. And yes, I realise what it sounds like to say that I have an everyday champagne flute. <laughs> but the fact That's is... <laughs> Like I, you know, I bought twelve of these damn things, and now I've got eleven because I had a very clumsy friend, and and they're not they're, me, for the official record, not me, as far as I know. But 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 yeah, but now I'm down, but now I'm down to eleven, and I thought actually no, and I thought it was going to be fine. I'm going to buy I'm going to buy them from IKEA because what could possibly go wrong? They discontinued the damn thing. Of course they did. Of course they did. I'm not buying another twelve. No, and I hope that you will find some on eBay. Yeah. Or in a charity shop. Yeah. But that comes back to your point about how durable are these pieces. So, in summary... You don't often see Ikea in a charity shop. In terms of our big topic, Ikea, a force for good or a force for evil? I'm going to say good. I'm going with good. I'm feeling very positive tonight. I'm going with good. I'm saying it's got the potential to be good, but it needs to wind back some of the decisions that it's made especially to do with its sizings that like for example the bed yeah the mattress is a certain size that means sheets i think if they could bring some uniformity back have some collaborations be be a more a part of the wider community of designers and artisans and furniture makers i would like that okay so good good potential for good Good. You're such an optimist. <laughs> Potential for good. Okay. 
we call this section designing together and it's things we something design related that we've both done this month yep and this month it has been the minimalism documentary on netflix yeah what are you thinking so i'm gonna be honest it was my recommendation it was and i thought it was gonna be about minimalism the design yes thing like less like less like well but 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 you know a tastefully arranged chair. Yes. Maybe a cherry blossom floating in a bowler hat. Okay. I was right. gonna say so, I was gonna say a clear glass vase. Sure, sure. Yeah, so that, sure. that's where I was. Um but 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 it turns out it was about minimalism in the context of a kind of anti consumerist uh, a, society. And, and it was a, a completely different thing. Which was interesting to me. So I, I grew up in a Mennonite household and in the Mennonite community, more with less is is something that we've talked about for a long time, there's a cookbook on my cookshelf, uh, on my cookshelf, on my bookshelf, called More With Less, um, which was written in the 1970s and is all about kind of how do you entertain generously without um, overusing the world's resources. Mm. So it was written during the energy crisis of the 70s and it was very, very much about kind of how do you, how do you make how do you make do? Um, and, and I think also coming out of the kind of post-war uh, rationing period as well. So... So this was something where, um, you know, for me, clearly there was a very kind of deep kind of family connection of kind of going, well, yes, of course. Like, what? why would anyone be a massive consumerist? More stuff is bad. And 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 that's kind of immediately where I come from, is it is a very kind of like you should have nice things that you love, but that you take care of so that you don't have to have lots of things. Um, and I married to somebody who genuinely has a one-in-one-out policy on my handbags and shoes. And I don't feel like I'm the kind of person that needs that sort of stricture in my life. But he, he, he has, you know, I remember that one of the first conversations he and I had when we met was him talking about extolling the virtues of Piet Mondrian mm. and basically saying, when Mondrian died, they discovered that in his home, he owned 25, I'm making the number, 25 items, shoes, one, two, yes. toothbrush. And and for and for my husband that is yeah that that is that is a goal that epitomized successful living that you know to the have art so of life few... is to have so few possessions yes. that your life is of the mind you leave nothing. Yet yeah, we've just had a conversation about yeah no I know I hear and um, how he and I used day, to go yeah. every day and, and, and yeah when and how of which we have eleven so now. I mean frankly. He can only have one shoe now because, frankly, we've got too many freaking champagne glasses. You're 25 items. Yeah, we're going to I- you're going to IKEA every week. It is impossible to live the Piet Mondrian ideal with that many trips to IKEA, but even not, if all you're buying is straws. But not according to the the guys who are in the and it was mainly men. It was almost there was like two women, there was a couple of women, and there was one who was and I. Our show notes will give a link to this. Um, there was a lovely couple, one of whom was uh, she was pregnant at the oh, time. Oh yeah, yeah. And there was a little part of me that when I, I absolutely adored them and their fabulous multifunctional flat with with walls that were quite dynamic, allowing different use of the yeah. space. Um, and there was part of me. I think had they already got one child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see this kind of like toy basket. <laughs> These two toy. But but do you know what? To be honest. So in my in my house, I have you know I have twins. They are three, and I go to my friends' houses, and they are exploding with plastic. I the hate minute it. you walk in the door, it's just brightly colored plastic, literally everywhere. And I just it makes me stressed looking at it. I know. 
So what I can honestly say, we've bought the twins maybe three toys. Everything else has been gifted. Everything else has been gifted to us, passed down to us. Quite a lot of stuff has been passed down to us. And certainly in kind of what I would call the adult spaces of the of the house. So like in the living room mm-hmm. and in the kitchen dining room. So in the living room, you cannot see any children's toys. Yeah, Everything which, is tucked into and that's exactly, cupboard. And, and they, that's where and we are now. And that's, we just... I can I can say this for absolute certainty. I'm sitting in what is a grown up space, an adult space. It's a grown up exactly. space. And in the kitchen, we have the we we have the IKEA children's kitchen. But in the children's IKEA kitchen, we keep all of their IKEA cups and bowls so that the twins can actually, you know, I can I, they can help. So I can say, you know, Isaac, go get the plates and help me set out, you know lunch and because the ikea kitchen is actually the right size for them and they play with the kitchen but predominantly the kitchen is additional storage for all of the crap that they have brought into my life yes. namely plastic brightly colored cutlery um and, and 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 for us that works right so so it is the thing in that adult space that kind of blends into the background but that nevertheless is very functional um but we're talking still we've we've taken but what we thought this documentary was yeah, yeah, about, yeah. which is about stuff in houses. Yeah. And actually what this was, was about people who were actually um, shunning materialism. And there was a lovely lady, um, she was a professor, and she was saying, actually, we talk oh, about God, this materialism yes. as the desire to consume huge quantities. But actually, genuine materialism is such reverence and respect for material. Yes. That you look after it. You have one beautiful cashmere jumper that you look after. You would sew it up one, if it gets damaged. You know, you have one sofa, and it is that you love a lifetime. And the thing, and and this is the thing that drives me nuts. And I I see this in I see this in everything. I see this in fashion. I see this in, um, you know, interiors. Fashion particularly, fashion particularly but, but it also, is transferring into interiors very much. So. Actually, I think for me, the best analogy is food. Everything comes back to food for me, obviously. But, like, the best analogy for me is food. I have never understood how it is that processed food is cheaper than unprocessed food because it has had a process done to it. So if you think about it, it just doesn't make no, sense. I agree with you now, completely. I kind of get that actually what it is about is about preservatives, it's about shelf life, it's about how long can you kind of, you know, from the point at which you take something out of the ground and put it on a table, you know, there's, you know, there's a cost involved with kind of getting something very quickly from point A to point B. And so I kind of get it. But at the same time, just conceptually, I find a real sort of cognitive dissonance with this idea that processing somehow makes something cheaper, that you're not costing in labor, you're not costing in kind of the environmental consequences of what you're doing. And if you actually looked at the true cost of things, then actually we would have a really, really different economic model. And but that's exactly what you're you're, you're not looking at the true cost no. of things. A t-shirt from Primark that costs three pounds, one pound, that is impossible. Yeah. The the material cost alone. Yeah. It is impossible. And for me, I would recommend watching this documentary because first of all, it holds a mirror up to all of us. Yeah. All of us have something in our home that we are holding which we know that we should hold something and say, do we love it? 
and if it doesn't bring us joy, perhaps we should let it go. We all have things, whether we've inherited them, whether it's a good intention. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm going to get round to. That represents everything that's a small size 10 or an 8 in my cupboard. <laughs> One day I will. Um, I've even advised people... Put it in a suitcase in six months' time. If you've lost the weight, you that can classic, wear it. That classic. And if you put it in a box. Give it to charity. Yeah. But do I do it? Do I take my own advice? No. And what this did was this did talk to me about why I am buying things to replace things I already have that I'm not using. Which, I mean, ugh, I hate to say my husband was right. That one in, one out policy. He's right. He's probably right. Like, how many pairs of sandals... Do I genuinely need? I'm going to say three. Like, that is my limit. I'm going to say three. So, four. Actually, no, I have four. I'm, I'm not a good example of this. See, for me, I... Because I absolutely... You love all, shoes. I love shoes, but my my thing that I... I look at my lists. I have all of these lists. Mm. Etsy is brilliant for the list. eBay, you've got your things that you've loved. They're mm. on your wish list. Um, ASOS... You can put things in your shopping basket yeah, yeah. for six days. Listen, listen, listen. And I have got fabric. So many different beautiful patterns of fabric from vintage individual pieces to stuff that's coming out. I could have a thousand different cushions in my home for all the fabric that I see and love for my own reason. It is completely unreasonable. It would be too overwhelming visually. But I have this innate desire to have it. I want it. Yeah. And I get a buzz from it. I spend mm. a disproportionate amount of money on fabrics. I buy them, I have something made, I like it, mm. I then want the next thing. Everyone has the thing. And that's thing. very much what this what this was talking about, was that kind of like, what I would call sort of quasi, slightly dodgy evolutionary psychology. Yeah, the which, hunt. which I don't think that, they, they articulated this in the documentary, and I don't want to tell them they're wrong, but I, but I just, don't think they were I, right. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think evolutionary psychology is incredibly convenient for mm. explaining the ways in which we behave now. I don't necessarily think... It explains I, why you need a 43-inch TV. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. I'm pretty sure. Mm. You know, I'm, on, I'm, I'm running down the savannah, and what I'm really thinking about is, oh, wow, that cheetah needs to be bigger and in high def. Exactly. Um, and it does make us look at the way that we consume things. And for me, it, may, it, it, it held a mirror up to me about why, why do I need that? Do I need it because I actually genuinely do need that Pierre Frey fabric, yeah. which is £200 a metre, but it is beautiful? Or is it that actually through advertising, and they quoted that we we're exposed to 5,000 adverts a day, on average, I think it was mainly American And see, market. I think that's very American. I think it is. It was an American market they were talking about, but I don't think the UK is far away from that now. Is it that I'm exposed to that and I choose to follow that? I choose to follow <gasps> that on social media. I Here's choose to Here's an interesting question, though. So with the advent of streaming, right? So I don't watch TV anymore. So I watch BBC yeah. iPlayer. No yeah. commercials. Netflix. And I watch Netflix and I watch Amazon Prime. I am exposed to adverts on social media, though. So promoted tweets, Facebook posts where they completely fail to know who I am, but whatever, it's fine. Um, I like to think that I, I just keep I just keep the algorithms guessing. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I, I don't really see ads in the same way, I think, that I, that I used to. And also they're more targeted. They are. They are more targeted. But that means for me, I'm, I'm seeing more. So what now they're saying? It's feeding me. It's feeding the addiction. I'm, I'm probably seeing, uh, I, have, I, would, I should add it up and talk about it next time. If I'm seeing less than 100 different fabrics a day, I'd be surprised. 
And if I'm only once a week yeah. thinking that's one that I want to buy, that's feeding a horrible crave. But I think I'm in control of it because that represents only one in whatever it was I said, 700 a week that I'm potentially seeing. It's, I'm choosing to expose myself to this. Okay, so, question. And then, and then I think we need to wrap up. But question. Do you think that you are looking at your things differently now that you've seen this documentary? Without a shadow of a doubt. Well, that is a pretty good recommendation to watch it. Yes. Okay, so. Likewise, same question to you. Honestly? Honestly. Probably not. I think, so, I, so I think I already had that philosophy. You did say to me you were going to go through your wardrobe, though. Oh, yeah, no, that is true. So, so I am going to go through my wardrobe, and I am going to say, actually, do I need... I have a really large variety of dresses that are basically good for only going to weddings, because there was a period in my life... There was one year... I am oh, in no way kidding. There was this one year where I went to 11... I went to 11 weddings in a year. The wedding years. The wedding year. It was the year that I turned 30. I mean, not that I ever turned 30. No. But it was the year that I turned 30. And, and everyone I knew obviously was turning 30. And therefore, everybody I knew in this great game of musical chairs, who am I dating and who will I marry, the music had stopped. Everyone was getting married. Anyway, so I have all of these dresses. Um, and frankly, I just, I can't wear them to work. They're too fancy for mm. work. They're not fancy enough for black tie. <laughs> they're also not practical, truth be told. Oh, they're completely pointless. I mean, they're completely pointless. So there's probably about 10 dresses that I absolutely do not need anymore. I do not need to be like that girl in 27 dresses. Mm. Storing these sad... In a tiny Manhattan apartment. But also, what what a very, very cool thing to surround yourself with. What is effectively a series of unhappy memories. She says they're happy. She says they're... But do you believe her? Well, no. 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 Different different thing to talk about. Different thing to talk about. Right. So, Abby... What are you doing next month? So, having talked about consumerism... <laughs> um, You're going to consume. I'm going to consume. I'm actually excited for... Um, there's a Chelsea Harbour event called Focus 18. Um, Chelsea Harbour is actually... Do you know, it's perceived to be an incredibly exclusive destination. Um, I mean, it's in Chelsea, so nothing says cheap like that. Um <laughs> But actually, the design centre, they do... They Listen, they have the big names there. If you want a Taipei rug, if you've got £10,000 and knocking around your bank account and you don't know what to do with it, it is a good place to yeah. go. But they also... They showcase the most phenomenal design and they bring together people who are really pushing boundaries in terms of design, both artisans, craft makers... But also the applications of that, so they have... Um, oh, right, so it's like a design show. It's a design It's a design collective. So okay. they're bringing together, they have um, exhibitions where they're showing new products and materials. Yeah. They have applications of those products and materials, and they have talks. Now, it's actually the, the 19th to 21st September, but I always like to just pop in a little bit before, see what... Mm. Because everyone's getting their stock in advance. And if we are thinking about um, materialism being buying less but having something that's really good quality that is the place that I would go to yeah. find quality and the reason being it's not just the materials that are sold there the people who work there their expertise is phenomenal okay. second to none so if you are talking to someone about a lamp it's not going to be a salesperson who happened to get a job and they happen to be selling a lamp these people are obsessed mm. they're they're obsessed with giving you the solution and even if ultimately that might not be a product that you can invest in today 
you will get experience and knowledge from them. And it might be something that in the future you say, yeah, that is the, that's the big gift that I want to gift myself. That's the, when I get the promotion, yeah. th- that's a recognition of my success. That will be a visual representation of something that I've achieved. That is what the Design Centre in Chelsea is for me. It's certainly not where I go and get everything because I'm not a millionaire. <laughs> Yet. Yet. So what are you going to be doing next month? I am going to be moving in to my mother-in-law's house. Oh, wow. For a week. That's a long time. So, uh, with my mother, but my mother-in-law is not going to be there. So, basically, what's happening is I'm having my bathroom redone, about which we will, of course, speak. Absolutely. And, um, basically, I'm going to be living in an entirely new neighborhood in a completely different part of London for a week, which is like going on holiday, because North London and West London are... Miles apart. Radically different. Yes. Anyone who's seen My Fair Lady will clearly be able to attest <laughs> to the fact that I will need a passport and I won't understand what anyone is saying. Well, I live in West London, so yes, I can I attest know. That's to why that. I can't go yes. there without a passport and like, vaccinations. Yes. We make sure that's the okay. case. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting because I think, you know, I've spent time there, but I haven't actually lived in that neighborhood. And I think until you live in a neighborhood, you can't really kind of get to know it and understand it and kind of get under the skin. I'm going to be fascinated to know how it is living amongst someone else's things. Not in an Airbnb way, yeah. which we've done. This is your mother-in-law. This is someone you know incredibly well. Yeah. And and she is somebody, I mean, to be fair, she is also a woman for whom everyday design is incredibly important. Yes. She is somebody who really, really thinks about her aesthetic, really, really thinks about the functionality of her space and and is constantly kind of like iterating and really sort of changing Yes, and, and she's certainly someone I've spoken to about her evolving design style. Yes. And worships at the altar of Tom Dixon. I don't think I'm To say nothing way. of Mezzer's Pharaoh and Ball. Of, oh my gosh, yes. So, yeah, no, I mean, it's, so it's going to be interesting. I mean, she's, she has a lovely home and, and, and I am looking forward to it. And I think, you know, in, in a sense, kind of a, a change is as good as a rest, right? It is, but I'm very interested to know how you find the, the green spaces of that part of London. It, it, no, and, it, and, and do you know what, actually? So it is one of two neighbourhoods I could live in that has an original Sir John Stone building. So there you go. So, and the other that. one is, is, is Holborn. And so it, it is less likely that I, that I will get to live there. But if you did ever... But so if I did get to live there, that would, that yeah. would be a whole other thing. And can I just say, this is a coffee, this is mine. This has been Everyday Design. We have been Rachel Fisher... And Abigail Hall. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on wherever you pick up your your uh, your podcasts. And uh, yeah, get in touch. We're on Twitter at EDD Podcast. And uh, yeah, we love to hear from you. Until next time. We are Everyday, Everyday Design. Design.